Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that recommends you speak to your doctor before applying for the position of national selector for the Indian men's cricket team. I'm your host, Benny, and thank you for tuning in. Our guest this week is acclaimed international batting coach, Toby Radford. Now, Toby played professional cricket for Middlesex and Sussex before embarking on a career as a professional coach. His impressive achievements include coaching Middlesex to National T20 Championship in 2008 and serving as batting coach to the West Indies team when they were crowned World T20 Champions in Sri Lanka in 2012 and when West Indies defeated England in a test series in the Caribbean for the first time in 17 years. Currently, he is an ECB Level 4 coach and currently presents the batting for the ECB on his Level 3 and 4 coach education courses. My co-host Mike spoke with Toby about his transition from player to coach, coaching approach specialized for youngsters compared to experienced hands, mixing net sessions with skills training, the development of junior cricket structure to feed into the bigger franchise leagues, and much, much more. So stay tuned for a batting workshop with Toby Radford. All right, uh, Toby. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I wanted to start with you firstly. Uh, you've been a player with Middlesex and with Sussex, eventually going into coaching. Um, now, coaching is not everybody's cup of tea. So, I guess, uh, how did you figure out that was the right next step for you? Um, I think even from an early age as a player, um, I was quite analytical, and I, I had one of the well, my dad had one of the very early video recorders, one of these massive things they used to carry around. So I'm going back oh, 35, probably 40 years almost. Um, so we used to film me when I was playing as a youngster. So I think that analytical side was there. Um, I took my coaching certificates quite early as a player. Um, so when I was at Middlesex at the age of 16, 17 in the winter, um, I got my level one and level two ECB qualifications. And then I would spend those winters um, working in schools in London um, and coaching. So I always had an interest in it. But I think the 
I think the sort of analysis side and the interest in that actually came from those early days of playing. Well, that makes sense. That's really unique, though. I, I don't know anybody else who starts thinking of coaching at 16 and 17. So um, seems yeah. like something that came naturally to you as well as just that opportunity that came by. Yeah, I think so. And and um, my playing career didn't really reach the heights I hoped it would. I mean, I, I played pro cricket at Middlesex and Sussex, as you say. I played for Young England. I toured Australia, New Zealand with England under-19s. But I didn't really sort of deliver as much at county cricket. And my career probably ended a bit earlier than I would have hoped or perhaps expected. So in the mid-20s, um, you know, what do I do? I had a degree in journalism. Uh, my dad was a journalist. You know, do I go into journalism? But I felt a lot of my life had been cricket. I felt what I knew most about was cricket. And the next best thing to playing was actually still working with top players and being in the environment. And uh, and I felt I had something to offer with that. So I started as a development officer with Berkshire, which was my own um, home minor county in, in the UK. And then worked my way up from there. So it was a development officer. And then I, then I worked with the ECB as a national coach. And then it just sort of built. Um, and the career sort of went from stage to stage with different teams, etc. Um, so, yes, started young, uh, but really wanted to stay in the game. And coaching for me was a way of staying in the game, I think. That, that makes sense. Um, let's dive into coaching. Uh, we know you were recently in Pakistan working with a lot of youngsters. Um, now, I'm always curious when, you know, uh, somebody who's who they're not, uh, they already don't know how that works. So, as an example, is there an expectation that you do a certain set of homework before you walk into a setup? Or um, is it you walking in, observing them for a few days, and then they come to you saying, hey, I need help with, you know, let's say power hitting. Um, how does that work? Um, I, I mean, whenever I work with someone I don't know, I always observe, you know, I don't go diving in on anyone. I try and get a bit of a picture first. I'd have a good chat with them get a bit of their background, you know, what number they bat, what sort of season they've had, are they working on anything specific or with anyone? So I, I try and get all that information and in just watching them, I'm building a bit of a picture um, and then gradually build that relationship. And then within hopefully fairly quickly, really, you can then start to um, to get some buy-in into things that you think will help them. And, and my philosophy is always as a coach to try and get players to become their own coach. So not tell them what to do, but to get them to understand, you know, these are your strengths, these are areas to work on and why they may be strengths or weaknesses. Um, so that when you're not around, they're not reliant on a coach. They, they you know, they can put themselves right because ultimately, you know, you're on your own, aren't you? When you cross the line and you're out in the middle of the wicket, you've got to make your decisions yourself. So I'm trying to encourage that, I think, as a coach, you know. No, that, that makes sense. And um, it's really interesting because you go in for such a short time, or in this case, at least you went in for a short time and building yeah. that rapport, building that, you know, bond where they start trusting you so that, uh, you know, yeah. they're open-minded to listening to your comments, your, you know, you mentioning what their strengths are. That's got to be a challenge, um, right? It is. And I, like I did a mix of stuff in Pakistan because when I went in, there was a project called the 100 Project where they had 100 of the best players from the whole of Pakistan at different ages. So there were a lot of players to observe, to make notes on, to start to build those um, relationships and start to work with. So, there, you know, initially there was some group sessions. Um, then I was working with the actual Pakistan under 19 team where you've got a smaller number of players. You've known them over a few weeks. You've built that relationship. You can really start to, to dig into areas that, that are hopefully going to make a big difference. Uh, and one-on-one, -on -one, which is where my passion really is. I mean, I love working on a one-on-one -on -one basis. You know, every coach, I think, loves that because you feel you've got that's where you make your biggest difference. Um, you get their full attention. They get your full attention and you can really hone in. 
I film all those sessions so you've got video feedback for them so they can see exactly you know what I'm uh, what I'm talking about so if there's any doubt in their mind hopefully the video backs up anything that I'm that I'm saying you know and I, as I say I always like to film whatever I uh, whenever I work with the batter anyway um, so it was a mix of stuff with the players, um, you know, and it'd be a mix of technical, tactical. But I, I found in Pakistan, I found the players and the same. I worked in Bangladesh for a couple of years. I found them very humble, very talented and really loving information. Um, you know, so I think they, they like it. I actually did a presentation for them, um, a presentation that I normally give for the ECB in England. Um, you know, some what I call the key fundamentals of batting. And I talk about what the world's best batters tend to to do that there's five main things that the world's best players tend to deliver despite having their own sort of flair and their own sort of techniques there are key things um, i'll tell you the five if you want i mean the five if you look at the world's best um at release of the ball they tend to have their head somewhere around off stump is number one um they keep their hands and the back very close to the body um for control and to to balance the body uh, three, they align their feet, hips and shoulders generally back towards the bowler's stump so they stay pretty side on. Uh, four, they track the ball so when the ball comes out of the bowling hand they don't move too early but they actually watch the ball and then move late to the line that the ball finishes on so they track it and move late and when they hit the ball they play from a stable base. So whether you take Coley or you know Babur Azam or Ben Stokes or Joe Root or whatever Yes, they may play some different shots and score in different areas, but actually when you analyse them, they will all deliver those five things pretty much. And you could do that across the world's best players. So from a coaching point of view, what I was trying to do when I was helping the coaches in Pakistan, I would say, look, you know, look for these five things, because if you meet those, generally you're going to find, you, you know, you're going to produce some quality batters. Right. No, absolutely. That that makes sense. Um, curious about number four in particular, because uh, I feel like I've seen a lot of video footage of batters where, they'll take um, you know, a step towards off stump in advance. Like let's say if they're expecting a certain line, things like that, or if it's, if the ball's moving a lot, um, they're trying to cover for their off stump. So there's a sense of uh, you know, being premeditated there. Um, yeah. And how do you reconcile that with the fact that you, know, you mentioned they move late? Yeah, well, you're trying, I mean, a lot of players will have their back foot slightly further to the offside than the front foot. So they'll just open the front foot a bit, which again, helps the balance go down the wicket and also prevents that front foot getting too far across. Um, there are, I mean, look, there've been some top class players who do get that front foot a little bit across and they've made, they've worked out their way to be effective. And as a coach, if right. someone's effective, you don't touch them anyway, just let them get on with it. Yeah. Um, but generally, if you start getting that front foot a little bit across, if any ball that angles in, you're going to start to play a little bit across it. So the chances of LBW or chipping the ball into mid-wicket square leg um, because your weight's falling offside. And so your head naturally goes with it and then you're more likely to play across the line. So just opening that front foot a little bit helps you to play a little bit straighter, straighter down the ground. So uh, you're trying to keep an alignment of your feet, your hips and your shoulders pretty much. If you're facing a right arm over the wicket as a right-handed batter, you're trying to keep everything lined up back towards the stumps. Uh, that obviously changes if you're facing a left arm over or a right armor that goes around the right. wicket. You'll open you, you'll open everything up a bit to go back at the at the bowler's hand rather than at the at the stumps. That makes sense. Um, no, but it, it's very true because I think a lot of people look at somebody like Steve Smith in particular and think, oh, he does things differently. But at, at the basics of it, uh, to your point, when he's playing the ball, he's about to meet the ball. The <laughs> basics are still pretty solid. And yeah. he's still pretty grounded in, in, you know, those those key points that you mentioned. 
Well, you would, yeah. Even Steve Smith and Shiv, I worked with Shiv Shandapal of the West Indies. You know, was top player at the time, one of the world's best, and great. And I was very fortunate to work with him, and he was very open, like Steve Smith. By the right. time the ball came out of the hand, he was actually fairly side on and fairly orthodox, but he started very open. But as yeah. you say, if you, if you look at Steve Smith, um, his head is close to off stump. Yes, he's a little bit open. His head's close to off. Stump. His balance is down the wicket. Uh, his hands are very close to his body, and he plays unbelievably late. So he plays from a stable base. So he, even he, with his slightly unorthodox look, actually meets what you would say were the key, key criteria really of, of top batting. You know, right. Uh, I also want to explore a little bit of playing it late. Um, do you think that's something that is learned, or it's also a little bit of gift? Uh, because I feel like a lot of people just watch the ball a little bit better than others. Um, do you think that just comes from practice? Like anybody who has a keen eye can can do it, or there is a certain yeah. gift? No, I I think anyone can you can do it, and I think there's specific practices to do it. Um, you know, there's some at the very basic level, and I do it with players who are really struggling or young players, uh, where you stand them in the crease without the bat, and you simply throw a catch, and you've got to get the head to meet where the ball finishes, so it makes them wait. So you're tracking the ball. Wherever the ball finishes, you come forward and you catch the ball with your hands under your head. So you, you, you're replicating the position you would get in when you play on the front foot. But you're you're moving to what I would call the finishing line and not the starting line of the ball. So it's this idea of tracking. Where does the ball end? That's where I want my head and my body to move to. Um, so there's, there's that. Then you would gradually build up the pace of it. Um, and, and at the top end, I mean, I do these drills all the time with the pros. Um, a bowling machine, but put a lot of swing on the bowling machine. So, for example, if you've got a, a right-handed batsman who's, you know, going a bit early at the ball, moving in the early stages of flight rather than tracking the ball, you set it up from sort of middle of the crease, but with a bit of in-swing on it, and then you try to encourage them to hit back past the machine. So, you know, put a couple of cones yeah. by the side of the machine. So it's forcing them in a way to just let the ball swing, wait for it to swing, and then meet the line. Now, if you... If you get good swing, it doesn't have to be fast, but if you get good swing and you, you get them to wait, what it actually teaches them to do is to watch the ball longer and play closer to the body. So as you say, playing later, under your head, close to your body, where you're, you're letting it do its movement first and then you're playing rather than the temptation, which a lot of players do, is to go at the ball and be playing a little bit too early as it swings. But you really right. want to be letting it swing first. All right, But those couple of drills work really, really well at different ends yeah. of you know levels of player really. Yeah, and it sounds like both of these drills are really trying to build a you know uh, habit that's not really something that you do consciously. Like you're trying to basically make them do things which yeah. you know they would do as a reflex in a match in a, in a game, no matter yes. if somebody's bowling at 140, which which really is the key because I think for batters in particular, uh, you're reacting to things. Bowlers are the ones who are setting up you know the play, but it's, yeah. it's the batters who need to react, and that's why they need to be more you know, f focused and more um, ready to react calmly yeah. about, about these things. It's, it's your practice that does it though, isn't it? And if you practice those things and you do them enough, eventually it becomes autopilot. And when you're under pressure, facing a bowler at pace, you've done that so many times in your nets that you don't think about it. You play naturally track the ball and you play late. I've got a wonderful picture, actually, I keep on my phone. And uh, when I do my one-to-ones with players and I've been working and talking to them about waiting a bit longer, meeting the finishing line, I produce this picture of Babur Azam. And it's a wonderful picture because it, it's actually, you've got the bowler releasing the ball. He's playing against Australia and it's one of their top bowlers, you know, 85 mile an hour. You can see the ball halfway down the wicket. Babur Azam has not moved. 
He has not moved. He's still in his normal stance, hands close to the body, toe of the bats up, and he is waiting. He's clearly watching the ball and tracking the ball, but he hasn't committed anything. He hasn't started to go to the offside. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's waiting. And wherever that ball will end up, that's where he will move to. But he doesn't move in that early stage of flight. That's the skill of top batting. And Babra Azam, I mean, he's in the top 10 in T20, 50 over and test match cricket. So you're looking at, you know, one of not, if not, if, if not the best player in the world. But that's the skill that makes him the best. So you're trying to recreate that with the players you work with. Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. Um, another aspect I'm curious about is specific skill training. So uh, let's say a batter comes to you and says, you know, I'm not a great sweeper of the ball, but I want to learn this so I can you know, manage spin better. Uh, how does how is that managed between um, their you know, overall training? Because obviously you don't want to hamper their mindset, their footwork. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, let's say the next game is three days away. Uh, how do yeah. you balance that out? I, I I never really worry about anything like that. I mean, I've always, you know, if there's things to work on, you just get on and do them. I think, you know, I I think time waits for no man. I think you've just got to get on and do it. I did some stuff with with a lot with these Pakistan players um, on sweeps, and again, you know, simple drills that can improve your sweep. So get into the finishing position for the sweep. So, you know, you, you, you're down on your back leg, your head is over your front knee, hands are high. And you can literally, as a coach, I can just lob balls easily into that area, get them to practice the technique of hitting down on the ball cleanly, middle of the bat. So they're comfortable with the position you hit from. Then you go back to the normal stance again, just easy little lobs into the same area. And the question I always ask the players when they're working on the sweeps is tell me and show me on the pitch where where's the area that you are comfortable sweeping from. Where do you feel, if I was to draw a box or a circle on this pitch, where do you feel you need that ball to land that you can control your sweep, hit it down, hit it in the middle of the bat square on the leg side? And then they would show me that area. And, you know, you'll sometimes even draw a box with them. But what I'm really getting them to do is to picture in their mind that when you're judging the flight, if it's in my box, I commit to that shot. If it's not in that box, right, plan B, knock a single into the gap in there or knock a single on the offside. But you, you start to build almost an autopilot without thinking, right, it's, it's, it's in there. And you play the shot before you even think about it because you've practiced it enough times and you've, you've learned to relate the area on the pitch with the shot that you're going to play. And obviously, you've worked on the technique while you've been doing the drill. Does that kind of make sense? It does. It does. Um, and then one of the other things you mentioned is, you know, getting them to understand where it lands or at least guess where it lands so that they know whether it's in their area or not. Now, one of the things, again, I don't play cricket at a high level, so it's probably a club cricketer problem, but um, the, one of the things I've noticed in the odd occasions when I've seen videos of myself batting is I think I'm doing something, but I'm actually end up, I end up doing something else. So I think, oh yeah, my feet are going right back up, but then I look at a video and I'm like, oh, I'm actually not really on the front foot or the back foot. Um, so is that is that something you notice with young players all the time and and yeah yeah we call it you know body awareness or kinesthetic awareness awareness of where you are in space and time and what muscles are doing and what you know as you say where you are positioned right. maybe you know in terms of your guard or where you're hitting the ball from but i think that gets better the more you the more you um look at footage of yourself and relate the feelings to what you're seeing your brain sort of starts to synchronize it all playing in front of the mirror and practicing shots in front of the mirror, really important. 
Uh, I spend a lot of time with players on their trigger movements or pre-delivery movements. I mean, it's so important that the movement you make, especially playing pace, that if you make any movement beforehand, that it works for you, that the timing is right, that, that it enables you to move again properly forward or back. Now, to get that synchronized and the feeling of where they're going, and like you're saying, to know exactly where they're going to, I often tell them to practice it in the mirror so they can see and relate the feeling of the movement to actually what is happen happening in reality, you know, so you right. don't get this mismatch, you know, this mismatch between the two. So video really good, practicing in a mirror very good. Um, if you if you if you've got if you if you're trying to um, to work on movements before the ball, putting chalk lines down or, or marking a start guard and where you want to end up. So say for example, you do a little double trigger before the ball's bowled. Right, this is my starting guard. This is where I want to end up. So you can then check that you're landing in the right place. Uh, simple little things. But if you do them, again, it's, you're a bit more professional about what you're doing. You're more consistent. You're more chance you're going to be consistent in hitting the ball and playing your shots. Right. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I guess listening to all of this, I'm wondering if you, you ask young players, uh, and obviously it depends on how committed each of them are individually. So they have to put in the effort. But... Uh, in addition to doing, you know, let's say four hours of physical training, four hours of batting training, an hour of two of this, which I, I don't know if it's, you know, shadow practice is the right word or um, just, you know, mentally getting themselves into the right spaces, getting those habits right. Um, do you ask them to do a bit of both uh, on a weekly basis? Yeah, I mean, I'm very flexible. I mean, I, I don't have set practices, really. I honestly turn up I think I've been doing it long enough now where I almost go with the flow and I see what's in front of me, which is, you know, what's the personality I'm dealing with? What's the level of the player? Where's he at or she at? What, what is going to make the biggest difference to this player? Because you'll see a player and you might see five or six things and you're trying to think, is there a root cause? Is there a key thing? How can I make the biggest difference here? If we work on this particular thing with balance, I think it's going to help the movement to the ball, the, the, the control of the shots, the timing, the power. So you get this knock-on effect if you get to the root cause of what the issues are. So that's what I love to do. Try, how can I make the biggest difference with this player? And then try to hone in on that. Now, that might be, it might be a mental thing. It might be a focus thing. It might be... Um, a technical thing so so you're really open to going in it whatever you know what the, the issue is to work on and hopefully your experience tells you the right way to go about it to uh, to get improvement as quickly as you possibly can you know that makes sense um i do want to switch topics um i know one of the you know many one of the uh, many incredible achievements in your career includes being the batting coach of the 2012 uh west indies uh, uh team which won the t20 world cup um firstly i think i wanted to ask you know now looking back a lot of people consider that west indies which won you know two titles and three world cups um a t20 dynasty uh was there any sort of realization at that point inside the team that you know they were on the brink of doing something great uh just considering the talent that they had I, th I think everyone knew there was um that it was a very strong side and, and very well balanced you know, and, and if you look back to and even comparing that team with the one that really struggled in this T20 now in, in Australia, um, the difference really was power in the batting and a lot of powerful batters, you know, whether it was Gale or Sammy or Russell. I mean, you had a lot of power all the way down. So you could clear boundaries, especially if it was smaller grounds. Um, 
but even in you know across the spinners and the rhyme, very difficult to pick. The guys didn't know which way the ball was going. Samuel Badry used to open the bowling with his leg spinners. You know, you'd have one or two overs out of the way before they'd realise. God, Bad, you know, Badry'd be skidding on lots of dots early on, putting the opposition under pressure. Um, then we had someone like a Bravo, Marlon Samuels, top class player. It just had quality, I think, all the way through. If I'm being honest, all the bases were covered. Very well balanced team, rights and left handers. Um, it had it had its pace bowlers as well, and I think in, in Darren Sammy, I think it was very well led. He had a, a really good captain, um, understood the game, and managed to bring all those players together. So uh, I think we knew at the time it was a very good side. You never know you're going to win a World Cup because you're obviously up against other good sides. Um, but we always felt we had a good chance, you know. And I, I just think it had a, it was quality cricketers all coming together at the same time, you know, playing a format yeah. that that at that period was probably West Indies' best team, really. Um, right. You know, Pollard, I haven't even mentioned Pollard. I mean, Pollard was there as well and he could he could strike the ball on any ground, you know. So, so huge depth of very powerful T20 type cricketers, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, we talked about building a rapo with youngsters. It's got to be even tougher building that with people who've been in the game, who've been international stars for, you know, a decade in some in some cases. Um, so how did you go about creating those relationships within the dressing room? Yeah, I, well, I, yeah, yeah, I think your method of coaching is different. Um, you know, if you're working with an under 16, under 19, of course, they haven't reached where they want to get. So they're, they're normally sponges. You know, they want every bit of help because they haven't got where they want to get. Often when you go in with the international team, your Pollards, your Bravos, your Gales, these are guys who've been there, delivered it, millionaires, often, you know, very wealthy guys. Um, so they could easily say, look, you know, what can you offer me? I've been there and done it and I'm doing it. But I think you you don't go in like that. You don't go in and tell them. You work with them. You use their experience. Um, you you initially build that relationship and rapport. Um, and you just say, look, how can I be offering help? And I think over time, when they see that you know what you're talking about, they, then they want you to be giving a bit more. So I think you go in a bit softer, build the trust and the rapport first. And then over time, you'd work with them the way you'd work with anyone else because there's a nice trusting relationship both ways. Um, I, interesting one for me was Marlon Samuels. I mean, when I first went into the West Indies, Marlon Samuels was very much sort of, you know, arms folded. What can this little white man from England teach me about batting? Uh, it was a little bit like that. And I didn't get much from Marlon and he was quite difficult. And then one morning we had a test series against New Zealand in the Caribbean. And I remember he, he, he came over, he brought his breakfast. He sat next to me for about an hour and he talked to me about his upbringing in Jamaica and Kingston and how the teacher had got him into cricket. And it was fascinating. And from that day on, never looked back and we became good mates. And whenever I'm in Jamaica, I go to his house now, he invites me up. And, and honestly, it, it was like he'd suddenly decided, you know, yeah, you are a good bloke. You know what you're talking about. I've watched you for a year now, working with all the others. Everyone likes you. So I, I'm happy now to give it. But for a year, he, he really was just sussing me out, I think. <laughs> he was the only one, but uh, never looked back. And uh, as I say, get on really well. And the lads were great there. And I'm, you know, I'm very good friends with Jason Holden. I worked with Jason from the age of 19 right the way through. Um, you know, so I know most of these guys now on the current side have worked with them. So I'd say they're as much friends now as, you know, as they are, uh, or that they've been colleagues really over the years, which has been good. That's great to hear. Um, one of the other things I'm curious about is, you know, today, uh, I, you know, I read a lot about, uh, you know, I read a lot from Dan Weston, people like Jared Kimber, and the way they write about T20 cricket today is, is vastly different from that period, right? They talk about boundary percentages and dot balls and not not you know uh, having that right balance 
yeah. was that also how you discussed the sport in uh, in 2012 or was it nowhere near this you know this sort of uh, evolution yeah i think i think there was always a lot of preparation and homework done in terms of who you're playing against um the the ground sizes you're playing on the pitches you know average scores winning scores i think there was always that um, and I, to be honest, you've got to be careful. You don't go too overboard on that. It's a real balance to be had. Um, and you get a lot of data now. There's data on everything. And, and I think the job of a coach is to really go through it and pick out the key bits. So when you're having your team meetings or you're chatting with your players one-on-one or however you do it, I think giving the important information, because some players don't want lots of information, it actually clouds them. It takes them away from what they do. So you've got to be really careful. You've got to know your player. Some players will want it. Some players don't want to know it. And they actually find it off-putting. So you've got to be a little bit careful about how you give the information. Um, there's, certain, there's certain data, of course, that everyone needs to know, you know, your boundary ranges. I felt watching the West Indies in this recent World Cup, they were playing on big boundaries in Australia, 80-yard boundaries. And I felt they were still trying to clear boundaries that even if you hit the ball, well, you still weren't going to clear them. I don't think they were prepared to do the knock it for two, run a bit more, adapt your game based on where you're playing. That's what I felt. Now, in the World Cup we won in Sri Lanka, those grounds were still pretty small. So the hitting aspect was fine on a 65-yard boundary. But if you're playing 80 yards in Melbourne or some of these places in Australia, you've got to knock ones and twos. Otherwise, you're going to be you know, well short of your target trying to keep it in sixes all the time. So... I think there was a lack of adaptability in this most recent team. I'm sure they would have talked about it in meetings, but probably been disappointed that they didn't um, that they didn't adapt a bit more to to where they were playing and what they were playing against. You know. So to that point, I'm curious, what do you think the chances of that 2012 team were, were if let's say that World Cup was in Australia? Because obviously that team had the power hitting. Um, yeah. But to your point, did they have the adaptability to take the twos, take the one, you know, quick singles? Yeah, I, look, I think they did. I think they did. And I, I tell you who I think would do that. Chris Chris Gale, yes, massive hitter, but Chris can bat. Chris could play any situation. Marlon Samuels often would get come in in a situation. I mean, even in the final when we beat Sri Lanka and Colombo, I think we were 30 for three or 28 for three or something. And we were struggling. But Marlon knocked it around, got in against the spinners. And then he got after Malinga at the end and gave us a score that was, well, it was, you know, it was it was a winning score so he showed that when we needed to do it he would adapt Chris has adapted many times Bravo very good in the middle could hit when he was in but actually quite happy to work it around and run so I think there were players in that side who would have done that um, there's a little bit sometimes with the West Indies play where there's a little bit of ego because they are six hitters and they're known to be entertaining batters they almost feel that they're going to do it. And even if it's a 150-yard boundary, it's impossible. I'm not going to let my ego show you that I can't do it. And they'd rather get, get caught 50 yards off the rope than actually, you know, let's just win the game. However you're going to win, let's win the game. And that's my feeling all the time. Let's be effective and win this match, you know? Absolutely. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the other thing I'm curious about is, you know, matchups is something that uh, you hear a lot in, in T20s these days and, and even in ODIs, to be honest. Um, was that an aspect you looked into? I'm, I'm sure you looked into like individual batters and or bowlers and who they don't fare well against. But I don't know if it was necessarily as well defined back in 2012. No, I think I think more so now. I think what we did do before, I mean, it was one of my roles actually in the team was to look at opposition bowlers and and the lines and lengths they bowl, the, the fields they'd normally set. When could you expect them to bowl? Are they going to come on in the fifth over or the seventh over? So you'd have an idea who was going to bowl where and when. 
and therefore, right, we might keep a left-hander back for for that middle bit. So we would often play with the batting lineup. I think we were doing the stuff that goes on now. It's probably in even more detail, but I think we were certainly, you know, trying to plan for those type of things. Have the right batter in against that ball at the right time, you know. Um, and we do it now. I mean, even when I'm running a team now, I'll make sure I've got three or four padded up at the same time. Have my right and left-hander. I'll switch them around depending on who's bowling. You know, if you've got a good leg spinner bowling to uh, and a short boundary one side, you might switch the batters around. So you, you, you'll make those changes now anyway, you know. Yeah, and, and that flexibility, you know, you mentioned switching batters around. I think is I, I personally think that's a key aspect of a good T20 team because, um, you know, that just gives you the ability to adapt to whoever the opposition is or as we were discussing, wh wherever you're playing, what the ground is like. Um, but I think the other aspect that's not been discussed as much is, the role of all-rounders. Um, the English team that just won had, uh, I believe, five all-rounders, right from you know uh, Ben Stokes all the way down to Chris Wokes. Uh, I mean, you could even count Adil Rashid, who has a domestic hundred as an all-rounder. Yeah. Um, so, what do you think the role of all-rounders is, and you know, making sure that balance is good, and and uh, you know how that sets up your T Twenty team? Oh, I think I think without a doubt. I mean, and you know. Ben Stokes, if you picked him just as a batter, quality batter, but he's also a very good bowler. Um, you know, Curran, excellent bowler, bowler of the tournament, but he can bat. I mean, he, he's had hundreds. I mean, that England side is a really good side. You can have them four or five down. They've still got guys, as you say, coming in at number 10 who can bat. I mean, it, it's, it, it, you know, they deserve to win. Let's be honest. They are the strongest team at the moment. They are the most balanced team. Um, the ability with bat and ball. And I also think they're very, very good fielding side. So I, I think they're a very complete side, um, that T20 side at the moment. So, you know, I think only fair that they won the uh, tournament because they did look the best team uh, for the reasons you say, that they a lot of people there who can bat and bowl of quality. I mean, they're not just right. they're not just all-rounders. They're very good all-rounders. And they could almost be in for, the, for for either skill, you know. So it's it tells you the quality of those cricketers, doesn't it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, stepping away from uh, coaching and, and T20 cricket, um, you know, the junior PSL was such a fantastic venture and, you know, it, it really helped grooming talent from a young age. Uh, I almost see it as sort of a feeder system into the PSL um, yeah. and eventually, obviously, the Pakistan's uh, national team. Uh, do you see that happening over the next three to five years in other leagues, the 100, the IPL? Um, because I personally think, you know, there's a lot of maturity to happen from a franchise perspective. Uh, if you compare, say, Barcelona or Manchester City and what they're doing from their yeah. feeder system perspective to what cricket is doing. Well, I, I, I think it, it could well be. I mean, this could be the start of, um, of, of a similar thing around the world and the IPL may, may follow suit. I mean, I, I have no idea. I don't know financially how it went. And obviously, a lot of coverage on TV over there. But I think the PCB put most of this money in this year. I think if it's to run next year, the hope would be that franchises would come in, um, possibly the Pakistan uh, PSL franchises would come in and they would run those teams. But I don't know. I have, you know I'm not privy to any of that discussion. I uh, obviously just working at the coaching level. But, um, you know, if, if it did, I think that'd be great. It was an excellent tournament of some real quality. Uh, pitches were good. Uh, there was some really good cricket. And um, for me, watching and being over there for the first time, high quality spinners, which you kind of expect in Asia, um, some good quick bowlers. And we played under lights, so the ball would swing quite a bit with the new bowlers. Uh, batters, there were there were some some very good batters. Players tended to struggle a little bit against spin in the middle. 
Um, so they were they were some of the, the learnings. And I think even at the back end of innings. Uh, so from a batting point of view, I certainly, you know, my discussions to them as a, as a group of batters was um, to need to work, I think, on on manipulating the spinners in the middle, which which isn't easy on Pakistan pitches because they skid a lot. The ball sort of skids quite low, so it's difficult. You get a lot of dot balls. So you've got to find a way to score. Um, right. And also, I think at the back end, just hitting with some control rather than gets a little bit frenetic with young players and they panic. You know, they, they've not been in those kind of situations. And you'd say to them, look, I know it's 2020, but, you know, just slow the situation down. Be calm. Give yourself a couple of balls when you first go in. I think the players who do that play quite well. Um, some of them are almost, you know, they get caught up in the, in the, it's a bit frenetic and a bit panicked. And then suddenly you can lose, bang, 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 and lose wickets quickly. Uh, so you just need to try and slow the situation down a bit. No, that makes sense. Um, I think it was maybe two World Cups, two under-19 World Cups ago when I was looking at the number of games each under-19 team had played. And I think India and Bangladesh had played the most games in the, you know, yeah previous 18 months and they were in the finals and so it, it really match practice at that age I think definitely matters um, yeah. and it's, it's great that we have you know something like the junior PSL and hopefully as, as we said it creates it pushes other leagues to to follow suit as well the other thing that came out of it and this was feedback I gave to management and and some of the players out there was watching the tournament the top players in that tournament the top young players batters certainly because that's what I was really looking at were they all played proper cricket shots the best batters were the ones who delivered the ones who tried to get a bit too clever a bit too funky moving around the crease they, they, they sort of came horribly unstuck and the ones who played proper shots you know whether it was a cut or a punch or pulls proper cricket shots that would be good in red ball cricket or 50 over cricket, they were the ones who delivered and then I watched the World Cup and I'm on the TV and I'm seeing Baba Azam and I've seen Coley play these wonderful innings. But Coley was playing proper cricket shots. So I think I think sometimes with these youngsters, they think T20 and they think, oh, God, you know, third ball, I've got to get down on one knee and hit it over my head and put a flaming hoop and dive through the hoop and reverse it. No, play proper cricket shots, react, cuts, pulls, punches, hit out back over the top. Because that's what the best players are doing and they're delivering in, in World T20. Um, so I think there was a message coming out of that. And if you're going to innovate, yes, innovate, but pick the right time, pick the right ball. And if it's not there, have a nice, easy option. So I think some of these lads get a little bit carried away, but that's the learning. Right. Um, that's the learning. You don't need to go overboard with all of that stuff, you know, good yeah. cricket and still win any match, I think, you know. Yeah, no, it goes back to what we started with, you know, the five basics and, and just having those basics solid. And I think that's true for Josh Butler as well, who's an, obviously an incredible T20 batter. Um, yeah. But he does all the basics right. And then occasionally he'll manufacture a shot when he feels his in. Okay, um, Hales will do the same. Hales, he'll back away every now and again, but his head is still and he'll cut you through the off stump. If you go straight, he'll pick you up. on. But those would be good shots in it. They're proper cricket right. shots. It, he's not getting, he's not slogging. He's not trying to hit the ball too hard. He's timing the ball. Head is still middle of the bat and crunching the ball, you know. And that, yeah. and as I say, you can go through all of those top players, Baba or, or Rizwan. You know, the, these players are delivering in all formats. They're not just, they're not just, you know, one format players. That's the point. Absolutely. Well, Toby, thank you so much for your time. It's been a really fun conversation. Lots to learn for us, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it. Uh, really appreciate your time, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again. Lovely to chat with you. Thanks ever so much. Good luck to everyone with their development. Thank you. thank you for listening to another episode of The Last Wicket. This podcast is a Cricket Guys production featuring your hosts, Benny, Mayank, Nish, and Himanish. 
For more details, please visit thelastwicket.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, do let a friend know, rate and subscribe on your platform of choice. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening and from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you.